The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Well, good morning. You can have a seat. This morning we are continuing our uh, Sunday series, our sermon series, through misunderstood uh, Bible verses, Bible uh, passages. Uh, and for those of you who, who have been here throughout uh, this series, this will be a nice recap of where we have been. For those of you who may be here for the first time, uh, catch you up to speed. So our first, our first series uh, was, our first sermon was on uh, Philippians 4, 13. Uh, Ryan walked us through the context of that verse, of that passage. And we see that Paul here is saying that he can do anything in Christ who strengthens him in a time when he received a nice financial gift uh, from the church uh, in Philippi. Uh, But he was content either way. He was basically saying to the church, thank you for this gift. I didn't need it. I was content either way. I was fine, but thanks. Anyway, why would he say that? Because he knew Christ was, was with him always. The next week, uh, one of our elders, Damien, helped us understand, uh, as I, I, believe he's, I believe you stated, and if not, I'm going to state it, or I'm going to agree with you, the most misinterpreted uh, verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. There we realize that God does love everybody, but he doesn't love us all unconditionally. We heard how that this verse is often used to support um, what's called unlimited atonement, even, even universalism. Whosoever believeth, they say. But with the right context, we see its true meaning. Then the following week, Pastor Andy Wolf, uh, pastor down in Huntsville, Alabama, walked us through John 15 and our union and communion with Christ and revealed that how often we think that it's first communion and then union, but rather Christ is instead showing that it's first union with Christ that we may have, that it first, it's first union with Christ that we have communion with him. Through understanding its context, we see that truth. And then Jeremy helped us the next week to see the context of 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Seeing that hell is not the total absence of God, but rather the total absence of his good favor, of his common grace. And finally, last week, Ryan walked us through Romans 8.28, passage that we studied this past Wednesday in youth ministry, in, in, in youth group. And he gave us a better grasp on the context of this, of this verse, of this passage, to see that life is not an alleviation of pain and suffering, but rather a life focused in a promised hope through such things given to us in Christ. And that brings us to our passage here today. Now notice, as I was kind of catching us up, I kept referring to the fact that it was important that we were understanding each verses, each passage's context. The three rules of real real estate of buying a house are what? Location, location, location. It's all about location. Drew knows that better than anybody. Similarly, the three rules of biblical interpretation to study and know God's word correctly are context, context, context. When we fail to understand context of, of certain Bible verses, Bible passages, we can come to small disagreements, small misunderstandings of a scripture, and even egregious errors in heresy. For example, through, through misunderstanding passages in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, Roman Catholics can see the Eucharist becoming the literal body and blood of Christ. And therefore... Uh, performing an egregious act in both communion and the Mass. Universalists can read passages like John 3, 16, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and others to wrongly believe that all people will be saved, whether they profess faith in Christ or not. When us pastors, we flew out a few months ago uh, to San Diego for a conference hosted by Ligonier Ministries, and we had a connection flight uh, both to and from. Uh, on the way there, our connection flight was in Phoenix. And on our flight from Phoenix to San Diego, I had the pleasure to sit uh, window seat next to um, a lovely um, middle-aged couple who had kids a little bit older than, than I was. 
And we just got talking about, you know, where we're going to San Diego, kind of started chatting. I had my earbuds in hoping that they would not talk to me, but they continued to press and press and press. I was hoping to take a nap, but that did not happen, unfortunately. Um, but as we were just talking and discussing, you know, they were going out for a vacation. They love San Diego. It's a beautiful place. And they asked me, you know, why I was out here. And I said, you know, um, we're out here for, for a conference and just up for, for, for work. And they asked me, oh, what do you do for work? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a youth pastor. And, um, you know, and they started talking about more traditions. And I said, yeah, we're part, I'm a Protestant, um, part of a non-denominational church. And they said, oh, yeah, we're Christian too. We're part of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Mormons. Inner tension, immediately just a knot, tight, uh, knowing that there was, I didn't want him to ask any questions. I just, didn't want, I just didn't want him to ask any questions. And we had great conversation, and it was great. It was fruitful. And we're getting to the end of the flight, and I am thinking, good. We are good to go. They haven't asked anything. And the husband comes. He said, so we've heard this thing that Protestants say that we're not true Christians. What do you think? And I was hoping to avoid it, but I, and I, and at that point I knew that gentleness yet truth needed to be conveyed. If you don't know anything about the Church of Latter-day Saints, about Mormons, one of the big, really the, the main um, disagreement that they have with God's word is uh, their view of the Trinity. They call it the Godhead. Now, when we say the Godhead, we mean completely different things because we believe that God is of one essence, in three distinct yet equal beings. They would agree that they are three distinct beings, but they would also say that there are three distinct essences. The husband said that they think that the Father, Son, and Spirit are only one in purpose, that they only have the same goals, but they are not of one essence. This then shows that they have a wrong view of who God is. They believe that they worship more than one God. And gently, yet um, truthfully, I had to say, no, you're not, you're not Christians. They were very generous and very gracious and understanding of that, which was, which was good. And we were kind of walking out the flight, so I just said, nope, see ya, and was able to be lying out of there. <laughs> Having, not understanding the context of Scripture, can lead us to these types of egregious errors. Having wrong understandings of fundamental things about who God is. Why does this matter? As long as we believe in something, right? God calls us to know him and to know him fully. We should desire to always understand his inspired word. And that is our mission uh, this Sunday, and that is a mission every Sunday. So this morning, if you would turn with me uh, to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be there as well as um, flipping back um, and, and looking in portions of um, John 15, though Andy covered that a little bit earlier, but there are some clear correlations um, between the two. But as we do, I, I, we, we ponder this question. We ask this question, what is love? What is love? I think if, the, if we were to ask the, the musical artist Hathaway, he would say, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. A legendary song that I think transcends generations. Most of you have probably played at proms and homecomings and high school reunions. I'm too young. I haven't had a high school reunion yet. But uh, it's, it's a song that everybody knows, at least the chorus. I don't want us to think too deeply about it, but it does reveal to us a, a misconception our world has about love, doesn't it? That, that, that we think... That love is the alleviation of, of pain, of suffering, of hardship, of struggle. Love is some sort of feeling towards someone or something that stirs up passion within our own hearts. 
Love is Cupid shooting us in the arrow when we see our, our spouse or someday spouse for the first time. Wink, wink. Um, for, for, for us, for, for, for humans, love is built upon emotion. It's built upon feeling. It's built upon arbitrary circumstances and in scenarios. It's, I've heard worldly love, even just human love, described as a desire to have. I love this. I want it. I love that house. I want it. Oftentimes our love is envious, isn't it? But is that how scripture describes love? Is love a feeling? Is love something that is based upon however the wind blows, based upon circumstance, based upon scenarios, based upon our own feelings. Well, today, Lord willing, we're going to endeavor to answer that question here in, the, in 1 John 4. This entire epistle of, of 1 John is centered around love. God is love. Love is from God how God has manifested that love to us and to our world, and how we must then love one another since God has first loved us. This will be kind of the route we will be taking and exploring together this morning. And um, before we read our passage this morning, let me, open, let me open us with a word of prayer. Lord, you are good. You are holy, you are righteous. God, you are love. God, we, we come to you in adoration of who you are and knowing who we aren't, knowing that you are the most holy. God, that you are completely righteous. God, we come to you as righteous wretches, as, as believers in, in yet a sinful body and in a sinful world. God, we come to you today confessing that though we love you, though we seek you, though we desire to glorify you and to enjoy you in all things, we still do sin. Oh God, forgive us. Have mercy on us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, your objective truth, your absolute truth that you've given us, that you've given to all. God, as we, as we look at your word in 1 John 4, as we seek to understand you as love, love being from you, your love being shown to us, and how that is supposed to flow out from us to others. God, be with us as we, as we seek your word, as we seek your truth. May we be transformed by the renewing of our minds to be conformed more and more to the image of your son. Be with me, Lord, a, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it as a broken vessel for your, for your kingdom. God, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also we are, because as he is so, sorry, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So as stated earlier, the first, this first epistle of John is centered around the love of God. It is a, it is a central theme of this letter, of, his, of God being love, of his love for us, and therefore the love that should naturally and must naturally flow out of us to others if, in fact, we abide in Christ. We first see the love of God mentioned in, in chapter 2, verses 4 uh, through 6. He says this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Then we see the first reference of, of loving others, the, the new commandment given just verses uh, later in verse 10. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. In chapters 2 and 3, uh, loving God and experiencing his love is directly correlated to abiding in him being in union with Christ. Not just communion, not just working with one another, but in union with one another. This theme is, is, is something that we, that we see in the first three chapters. Love God, then love others. And John just doesn't, doesn't just put this in that order based upon his own desire. He gets that order. He's, he's simply following Jesus' demands and his commandment that we see in Luke 10. 27. Here it's the beginning of the story of the woman at the well, but before that, a lawyer comes uh, to Jesus and says, what is, uh, how, you know, how can I be saved? What is, what is the path to eternal life? And Jesus asks him, what is, how do you read the law? How do you understand the law? What, what, what is it encompassing? And the lawyer says in, in verse uh, 27, that you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you shall love others as yourself. In this, in this command of Jesus, in the affirmation by John in, in, this, in this letter, in this epistle, points us to a greater point worth mentioning that the reason Jesus responded, and he responds saying you, you are to the lawyer that you are correct, the reason why the lawyer responded in such a way and was correct was, was because we cannot love others if we do not first love Christ. To properly love others, we must first love God. If we do not love others, it is because we do not love God first, and his light is not in us. And if we do not love God, then we cannot love correctly those around us. That is why, similarly, John begins 1 John 4, in verse 7, by making this very point in references to Jesus' demand. So, in verses 7 and 8, we learn that love is from God and that God is love. It is important that we understand this. It is vital that we understand this about God's nature. He is not just loving, though he is. He does not just show us loving acts, though he does. God's love does not just 
It's not, it's not based upon his, just because he likes us, just because how he feels in the moment. It's not about anything, that, especially not anything that we have done. No, God's love is because, God's love for us is because it is of his very essence. It is who he is. Without God, there would be no such thing as love. I mean, there would be no such thing as anything, but in this case, love as well. Throughout scripture, God manifests his love to many different people in many different situations. He, in, as believers, he has manifested his love to us. And there are, there are a few examples that I want us to point to, uh, two in particular of the Bible. And they come in the first three chapters of the Bible. And before we look at those two examples in Genesis 1 through 3, we often hear this, and we may even tell ourselves this, well, the God of the Old Testament is all just mean, wrathful. He has vengeance. He is judge, he is, he's judgmental. He is executing his justice. The God of the New Testament is love. That's where we see the love of God shown. I would say, oh, contraire, brothers and sisters. We know God to be unchangeable and to be immutable, that nothing of him will ever Change. This means that the his attributes, that they are the same today as they were in the Old Testament, in the times of the writings of the New Testament, during creation, before creation, for all eternity. And because of that, his characteristics, his attributes will forever be immutable. And Paul says this about Jesus in Hebrews 13.8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in the Old Testament, God declares his immutability in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. God does not change. God is love in both the Old and the New Testament. New Testament. God is wrathful in both the Old and the New Testament. The beauty of the immutability of God is that, something, is that nothing God does should ever surprise us because he is unchanging. We know who he is. And nothing should catch us off guard. His uncha the unchangeable God displays his goodness and his justice. So two places in the Old Testament in, in I want us to look to of his love showing really the first moments of the God is love, is, is first in creation and then in the story of the fall. The Lord creating the universe, the earth, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beautiful mountains, the, the oceans, the rivers, the lands, and ultimately creating you and I in his image is an act of his love. By creating you and I in his likeness, God displayed Love. He did not need us. He did not need to create you and I. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. He, it wasn't like he, there was a void in God that needed to be filled, and the only way was to create you and I. No, but rather, God being loving and displaying his love created us for his own glory, created us that we would enjoy him, glorify him, love him, that he would be praised. This is an act of love. But two chapters later, these creatures that he made in his own image defied his law and instead sought the law of their own desires. And this brought about original sin into the world and, and into the lives of every human to ever exist and to ever walk the earth. Except for one, Jesus, of course. In their sin, Adam and Eve realized that they were naked and hid themselves from the Lord. They they were told that if they ate of the fruit, they would surely die. And when they ate of the fruit, they knew what death was, they knew what it meant, and they were afraid. But God, being rich in mercy and love, he clothed them in their nakedness. He didn't change his mind. He had ordained this to show his mercy and his love to his creation. Now, this love did not alleviate any sort of consequence for sin. There were and still are consequences of sin. But rather, this displays God's goodness 
in all, in all his ways. So verse 7 makes the explicit declaration that love is from God. But we often don't think of love in this way, do we? We think that love is derived from our own persons. We think love is something innate in all of us, something that we naturally do and produce. Right? We have, we as, as a human race, have coined this term that love is love so that you and I can create for ourselves our own definition for what love is and what that looks like and how we show that. We believe that we are the ones who define perfect love. But the thing is, that's because, that means that it's all subjective to you and I. I can have a different understanding of perfect love than anyone. Its definition to us is based upon each person. You love how you love and I love how I love. But the word of God says that God is love. What does that mean? It means that God's love is, is different. It is distinguishing from our love. Our love is based upon emotion, current circumstances. If you know me, I love the Cubs. Often, uh, it's not easy to love the lovable losers. Uh, I, I grew up a major Cub fan, and uh, you know I've been to numerous, numerous games. I fell in love uh, with Sammy Sosa and the home run race of 98, even though I mean, I was living it, but I wasn't, I was born that year, so I don't remember any of it, but I watch videos. And uh, I just, I fell in love with the team. I fell in love with baseball. And, but when you consistently lose and lose and lose and lose and lose, loving them is not easy. Uh, 2016, when they won the World Series with the best team to ever exist, uh, it was pretty easy to love them. There was no pain. There was, no, there was no pain of losing, of, of missing the playoffs yet again. There was, there was no real loss. They had the best record in the league. I mean, like, there, there was no, there was no, it was bliss. There was rarely any losing. There was really no torture. Instead, it resulted in an amazing team and in, 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 in true happiness. But my love for them was heightened because of their performance, because of their success. My love for the Cubs, is, of course, is at the peak when they're winning, but when they're losing? I mean, I still love the team, of course, but am I necessarily happy with them missing the playoffs? Am I, do I enjoy that? Am I as devoted to watch all 162 games, knowing that they will mostly lose the majority of them? Of course not. Why? Because our love is based upon emotion, on feeling, on current circumstances, on others' performance. You may feel that way with your spouse. You may love them more if, you know, rarely the husband will do the laundry, clean the house, whatever. That may bring a little extra, little extra brownie points. But when you're sitting around doing nothing, you may not be as lovable because often our love is tossed to and fro by the wind. But God's love is distinguishing. It is different. It is better. It is best. His love for us is not based upon performance. His love for us is not contingent upon anything we say or anything that we do. His love is not conditional. His love for us is agape in the Greek unconditional because it is from his very essence. That word agape in the New Testament had, it was not a word that was known to the Greeks, to the people of that day. That word had to be pretty much created by the New Testament authors because there was no such thing as unconditional love. They did not know such a concept of love existed. But God, through sending his son, displayed agape love perfectly. God loves us because we have been united with him. And being united to God brings us unconditional, everlasting love. 
Now, God's love does not mean that he forgets or excludes any of his other attributes. The manifestation of God's love does not forget his, his justice or his righteousness or his holiness. John also tells us earlier in, in, in chapter 1 of his epistle that, that God is both faithful and just. These two do not come at the expense of his other attributes. This means that the love of God is not just distinguishing it's indifferent, but it's different because it is righteous love. It is holy love. It is holy love that does not celebrate evil doing for the sake of love. It is love that does not boast, that does not envy, that does not want. Our love is often boastful, is often envious. But his love is not. His love is holy. As one pastor describes it, God's love is distinguishing, it is righteous, and it is also correcting. The righteous love of God is always perfectly displayed to all. God's love is never shown to anyone, whether believer or non-believer, in a non-perfect way. But of course, there is one act throughout Scripture, throughout history, that displays this threefold, sevenfold. And John points this out to us in verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's, God was not just sitting in heaven saying, I love you, I love you, I love you unconditionally, and not proving it, and not showing it. Instead, the love of God was displayed in its entirety, in, in, in its perfection through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. The acts of Christ while on earth were based out of his love for his people. His sacrifice on the cross for his people was derived from his love. It's no coincidence that when we look back at John uh, 15, four, uh, 12 through 14, that Jesus teaches us the greatest showing of love one can make, to lay down one's life for their friends. Sacrificial love. Let's look at John 15 here in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, disciples, if you do what I command you. It is sacrificial love, love that is willing to die for others. Love that is so selfless, so humble, that it gives up its life for its friends. The love of God being perfectly manifested through, through Jesus' death, through his crucifixion on the cross, becomes much more weighty and incomprehensible when, when we understand who Jesus truly was, truly God and, and truly man. It, it, is, it is one thing for, for, for us to do so. For as, as, sin, as sinless beings, one who, one, ones who deserve death, Ones who don't deserve grace and mercy, but deserve judgment and wrath. But it is another thing. It is a completely different thing when Christ does it. Being truly God, being perfect in all ways, and yet still sacrificing himself, emptying himself for the sake of his people out of love. So in verse 10, John says that Christ was the propitiation for our sins. This word simply means that, it, to, to the word propitiation means to satisfy or to appease someone's wrath. 
This humbling understanding of God's, of Christ's death on the cross should be something that never slips our mind. God is mad. God is angry. Sin must be punished. The debt that sin causes must be paid in full. We are, as, as Jonathan Edwards puts it in a famous sermon of his, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Salvation is being saved by God from God. What does that mean? We are being saved by God's grace and his love for us from his wrath. And thankfully, God is inclined to love. He desires to show his love to all his creation. God does not desire and enjoy and find, and find pleasure in displaying his wrath upon sin and sinners, but rather he is glorified and finds joy and pleasure in displaying his unconditional love. And we can have peace now that we will never not experience the unconditional love of Christ because we have been united with him. The love that we will forever experience, it will always be conditional. This love that is conditional, it's what draws us near to him. Through love we abide in him. Verses 13 through 18 reveal to us this key factor of the Christian life. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in, the world, in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Knowing God and being in union with him is based in our love for him and first his love for us. Again, we see parallels here with John 15 in verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Within John 15, those in 9, 9 and 10, and here in 1 John 4, 13 through 18, we can see a beautiful picture of loving God and being in union with him. But do not be deceived. Often the language here can be tricky and we can think that ourselves that God loves us because we love God. The end of verse 16 would seem to suggest that it's kind of an if-then. And whoever It says, and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. It's almost sounding like if we first abide in God's love for us, then he will abide in us. It sounds almost that we, we, can, we can trick our minds into thinking that it's first us. But that is cleared up. That, mis, that misunderstanding that we, that we may often have is cleared up in verse 19. When he says explicitly that we love because God first loved us. It is God who makes the first move, and even the second, and the third, and so on. Oftentimes, we resist the love of God. We don't want it. We don't need it. It's too controlling. It's too restricting for us. It doesn't allow us to live how we want to live. But thanks be to God but that his love does not give up. That he will forever pursue us. And that is 
not ultimately, it is, it is ultimately irresistible to, to know and experience and be abiding in the love of God. If we confess, so it, it, this, this love of God for us, it must produce love for him first. If we confess with our voices that we are Christians, yet we do not love God, we do not love God's law, we do not love his goodness, his righteousness, all that he is, then the truth is not in us. We are a liar. But true confession that Christ is Lord proves that we abide in Christ. This, this, this entire epistle, I think, for us is also a great book on assurance. That we can be assured, how do we know that we are saved? That if we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us, if we love the Lord, if the Spirit is within us. As Derek Thomas said, if we set our minds, alluding to Romans 8, excuse me, alluding to Romans 8, how if we set our minds, where do our minds drift to? If we love God, our minds and our hearts will be set on him in all ways. We often ask ourselves, am I really saved? And, and, and thankfully here, John is comforting us, I think. As we hear him saying that, that we can respond with confidence, saying, yes, I have been saved. God is with me. He abides in me. He continues to show me unconditional love because he has sent Christ to be the savior of the world. So to abide in God is to abide in his love. This love, when perfected, casts out fear in its entirety. But why fear? Right? The, often we think the opposite of, of love is hate, which it is. It is the opposite of hate. But what does fear have to do with love? So John was purposeful in using this word fear in verses 17 and 18. He says, by this love... By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The fear here John is referring to is, is to a fear of, of, of punishment, the fear of being forever punished for our sin, of, of spending eternity away from his common grace, from his goodness. This is something that many, if, if not all of us, have thought about at least once in our lifetimes. If, if hell, being the complete absence of God's common grace and goodness, with hell, being, with hell being the common, sorry, with hell being the complete absence of God's common grace, then hell, we can't even comprehend just how awful that is. We, 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 people may think that the love of God isn't shown now. If we think that, imagine what it, what it is when it truly isn't shown in heaven. But, G, but John comforts us here by assuring us that that is not our future. That because God has loved us, we have no right to fear. It is not right for us to fear punishment, to fear death because we have been given a promised hope that we will be glorified in heaven both and be in perfect union with him. And this is because, of course, that God first loved us. Well, that pretty much sums it up. There's really nothing much for us to do. We just experience God's love and that's it. So uh, there's nothing for us to do. We can live on as we want to. Um, it's a joke, by the way. Uh, God is love and has, he has shown us such a love. And because of this, how does John start our passage this morning? Beloved, let us love one another. That is a demand. We must do so. The love that God shows you and I, this unconditional love, must naturally flow out of us a love for others. If we do not love others, we do not love God. 
Verse 12, and verse 12 might, might be perplexing to some of us. It was to me when I first read it and how it kind of fit in this passage. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Why that beginning portion? No one has ever seen God. How does that fit here? Well, thankfully, John doesn't leave us out to dry. He clears that up with more context here in, in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he, has, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Loving others is the root of our salvation. Rather, it's the root of, it's the root of, of our fruit. God is the root of who we are and of our salvation and love is, is a fruit of that. If we are not attached to the root of love, that being God, we cannot produce the fruit of love first to God and then to others. This means that genuine love cannot be done without loving God first. Again, if we claim to love others but do not love God, we, we fail to love. That love is not genuine is based upon our own self, our own desires, our own ideas of what love is. But if we love God first, we can then practice real, genuine, true love. Love that is unconditional. We are called to love unconditionally. This command of God that John repeats in this chapter is not because we gain anything by loving God. We don't come holier than thou. It is not for any true salvific benefit for us. Loving others is, is not to earn a spiritual brownie points. The love of others is meant to be an outpouring of God's love for, for us, his, his selfless love, his humble love, his patient, kind, content, upholding of God's law, not rejoicing in wrongdoing love. Now, do we execute this perfectly? No, of course not. Just ask Sarah. I do not, ever. <laughs> Ask your spouse. And if you think you do, ask your spouse or ask your fam a family member and they will probably, hopefully, give you a slice of humble pie because none of us do this perfectly. So why then does John say in verse 17 that by this is love perfected in us? Why does he say that? Does it, does it mean that, that we will love perfectly, that we are expected to love perfectly? Well, we can ask other questions. Are there any parts of our lives that we can say are truly perfect? Are actually absolutely completely perfect? Our marriages, our relationships, our vocations and careers, our finances, our, our spiritual lives, our practices of, of the spiritual disciplines, our prayer life, our devotional time. None of these things, I think any of us can say, being honest, can be perfected in this life and, and, and have been perfected. The perfected love that John is referring to is the perfect love that has been displayed to us for our sake. Because we have received such perfect love from Christ, we are called to show that love to others. Therefore, we have no excuse but to love others and to first love God. Love is from God. God is love. He has shown us time and time again what this looks like, but ultimately manifested through Christ dying on the cross for our sins, an act of complete and unconditional love. This brings us to communion this morning. The love of God was displayed perfectly in Christ by being nailed upon the cross for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of all believers. And on the night before crucifixion, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, 
He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. As Christians, we partake of this family meal to remember such an audacious love, such an unconditional love revealed to us in the death of Christ on the cross. God, Christ knew exactly what he was saying and what he was alluding to in John 15. He knew that he would lay down his life for his friends. But if you are here this morning and, and, and it's your first time or if you are not a believer, you cannot say that, that you love God, that you have been saved by his unconditional love, then we would ask that you not participate of this meal. We are very thankful that you are here. Please come talk to myself or to Ryan or really any of us. Uh, we would love to share with you more the beauty of the gospel and of the love that God has shown us. But however, we don't want this to be an act of hypocrisy, confessing something in an act that you don't yourself believe in your hearts. But if you do confess in your hearts, in your minds, with your lips, that Christ is Lord, that his love for you is enough, that his love shown to us on the cross is sufficient for you and for me. This meal is for you. A meal remembering the love of God displayed perfectly to Christ in us. We don't take this to save us. We take this to remember what an unconditional, unworthy love we have been shown in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, how loving you are towards us. A love that we never deserved, could never earn. But Lord, yet a love that you wanted and continue to show us. God, for such a merciful gift, we praise you and we worship you this morning. Lord, as we come to you in communion, partaking of the bread, of this juice and of the cup, Help us to remember such a love, to not take it for granted, to know that your love is not based upon anything we do, but that we can rest in your unconditional love for us. May that flow out from us naturally to those around us, to our family, to our friends, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to strangers, Lord, to all knowing that we love because you first have loved us. God, we praise you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.